all music is storytelling in different ways. You know, even improvising in jazz, if you're improvising, you're creating a story in the moment. Coming up on In Contrast, vocalist Mago Herrera and Brooklyn writer violinist Colin Jacobson. I'm Ilan Stavans, and In Contrast is a production of New England Public Radio and Quixote Productions. Brooklyn Rider is a contemporary string quartet known for its performances of the standard repertoire and new works. In 2018, they released Dreamers, a collaboration with vocalist Magos Herrera. Herrera is a Mexican jazz singer, songwriter, and educator currently residing in New York. In 2015, she was the recipient of the Latin Masters Award from the Berklee College of Music. For our interview, Herrera was joined by Brooklyn writer violinist Colin Jacobson. To start, let's hear Milonga Gris from the recording Dreamer by Magos Herrera and Brooklyn Writer. I'm 
It's a pleasure to have you in In Contrast, Magos Herrera and Colin Jacobson. Thank you. Muchas gracias. Thank you so much. Magos, I would like to start with some thoughts from you about this new recording, Dreamers. How did it come about? What was the process for it to coalesce? The spirit of the album, it was kind of like a call to stand the spirit of our times through this thing we do, which is music. And it was a call in the sense that I had the necessity to speak up in a constructive way instead of recreating negative thoughts. And so it was kind of like a healing process in a way. And also it was a call on my own identity as a Mexican immigrant in the United States the need to use language as a tool, as a powerful tool of transformation and reformation of culture and identity, but most importantly, a conversation. So not standing only on one side of the story, because then you're exactly doing the same thing that is happening, but opening the conversation and having a project when a quartet of the size of Brooklyn Writer embraces this narrative opens the conversation. So it's not a Mexican saying, yes, this is beautiful, but is this incredible, wonderful artist embracing this narrative and making a frame for this music to be grand. So I think that's in very few words how this became. You described yourself as an immigrant. You came to the United States, if I understand right, approximately 10 years ago from Mohamed. Mexico. You were born and raised in Mexico City. That's right. And you have arrived, for better or worse, at a time when Mexicans are vilified in the media, in high offices. We are described as malignant, as bad hombres. The word in particular, <laughs> dreamers, refers to the group of young people that have come in undocumented fashion and up until the age of 30 are ready to stay and to be allowed through this act to study. What can music do to change things? In this particular case, in this project, there are many windows to answer this question. Talking about the name itself, obviously it has a double lecture, what you just said about the dreamers, but also the possibility to dream. So what this repertoire is about singers and writers and great poets from Iberoamerica, Spain and Latin America that went through very difficult political regimes and what transcend is their work, which is a reflection of beauty and love for humanity, democracy, inclusiveness, possibility. And I think the idea of having this title as a title is an invitation to dream in the idea of that every big change in history and all the good things that we have now as humankind is because someone dreamt about it at some point. So... I think it's an invitation to keep dreaming, like not get stuck in the negative negativity, negativity yeah. of what is happening. But actually, we are a lot of things. We're not only this. So it's an invitation as well. Colin, your perspective of the word and how this coalesces the project in the moment that we're living in. When Magos first approached us about doing this project... And we started talking about what songs would we want to do together. One that I had loved for years before we talked about it was Balderrama. So there's so many borders that one needs to cross as a musician. There's the border between you and your instrument, you and the composer who may or may not be alive from your culture or not. And then in the case of this project, a string quartet reaching out and Magos reaching to not only across cultures, but across 
musical cultures, jazz, classical, something that we all do in our work regularly, but hadn't really delved deeply into this Latin American songbook. And so we jumped at the chance. But to go back to Balderrama, there's the idea, and I didn't know this because I just loved the music. I loved the singing of Mercedes Sosa. I loved the movie where I first encountered that was the Che Guevara biopic by Steven Soderbergh. Mm -hmm. And the song comes in in a very poignant moment. But I just started listening to that song a lot without knowing the lyrics, but really being captured by the feeling. And I think that is the part about music, whether it's with lyrics or not, you can get inside of a feeling. But then when we started talking about doing this song and thinking about arranging it, getting to know the lyrics and particularly that idea of a place, in the case of that song, Balderrama, a place where musicians, poets, dreamers... People who want to dream can gather, and without that place, then we're in trouble. And I think that place is a metaphorical place. It's a place I was thinking about in the last couple of days, not unlike a kid's movie from about 20, 25 years ago called The Never-Ending Story, where basically you need to be able to dream of the place or the place cannot exist anymore. So I think that relates a lot to the idea of the project in general. You were talking, Colin, about Valderrama. It's a piece with lyrics and composed by Gustavo Cuchile Guisamón and José Manuel Castilla, arranged by you, Colin Jacobson. Let's take a listen. Se apaga Valderrama 
vaso de vino tiemble el lucero del alma y en cada vaso de vino tiemble el lucero del alma samba del amanecer Valderrama, performed by Magos Herrera and Brooklyn Rider. Magos, I want to go back to the idea that you were suggesting and that Colin was pushing forward, that we dream a different reality, and that is a way to push us forward and make us more comfortable, or at least battle the forces that are descending on us. As an immigrant yourself, Have you experienced different types of dreams from the time when you were in Mexico and your new life in the United States? Does the dream life for an immigrant change? Well, I think any artist that moved to New York has a very particular dream, regardless where you're coming from. And my dream was to explore, to explore in a level that I was really looking forward to. Not that I was working with incredible musicians in Mexico, and I still do, incredible artists that help me to grow and that I respect a lot, but the power, the vitality and energy of the New York scene is really unique, and it's addictive. So that dream is there, and I'm living the dream, and mm -hmm. I'm really grateful for that. And I think something that goes together with this statement is that this is only possible because the principles that New York palpitates in are the principles that I believe in. Talking about inclusiveness, plurality, possibility, and being truthful. A New York artist, you have to be truthful. Otherwise, you cannot just be New York, you know. And you sing in Spanish and you sing in Portuguese. Do you dream in either of them? Do you dream in a particular language or it's mostly visual? I guess I dream in different languages. You do? But mostly in Spanish, mm -hmm. for sure. Because that's your native language. Yes. Now, I have seen 
your voice, which is beautiful, and the rhythm and the cadence, really hypnotizing, described in a number of different ways. Most recently, I have heard it being portrayed as smoky. And I wonder how you would describe your own voice. And maybe along with this, some of us who are not singers, certainly far away from the distinction and the power that you have, sometimes cringe when we hear our own voices on the telephone <laughs> or on a voice recorder. So I wonder not only how you would describe your voice, but what you feel when you listen to your own voice. I do have a radio show for Mexican public radio, and I don't like my speaking voice, <laughs> I have to say. It's very different because you place your sound in a different place. You know, I've never thought about it. I experience my voice as it happens in the actual moment of making music. And depending on the circumstance or the context, your own experience changes. Yeah, and I think over the years, and especially the last five years that I've been working in very intimate or naked situations, I have explored my sound in a deeper level, I think. And this particular project is a great opportunity to do that. How has your voice changed with age? A lot. Just naturally, it drops. You know, mm -hmm. it places in a different place in your body. And yeah, it's just a natural process. The same question, mm -hmm. Colin. For a string quartet, I assume that the arrival of a voice such as Mago Serrera is a fifth instrument that recomposes the dynamic of the other four. How would you describe her voice? And how would you describe the dynamic that happens between the various instruments mm. when that voice is part of that game of sounds? Sure, yeah. Well, I mean, just to say that, obviously, as string instrumentalists, we've been told our whole lives to try to sound like a singer. Obviously, that means very different things depending on the culture, what a singer sounds like, and then the individual. So we're coming out of a Western classical background but have spent much of our lives in the quartet working with people from different traditions. So part of the identity of the quartet is to represent that tradition, but also really want to engage with different sound worlds, different inflections. And that's a wonderful challenge, actually, because then that's the richness of the string instrument is without frets and with a bow, you can literally do what you dream. You dream the sound in your head, and then that comes out. And if it doesn't come out the way you want it, then you deal with the technique of how to make that happen. To the question of Magos's voice, I think of it as a very rich, burnished sound, and it's in the register of the viola. So it sits right in the middle of the quartet's range, basically. And that's a very rich place to be, I think. Like, we often think metaphorically of, like, the sound of the quartet trying to put our sounds in some imaginary central point. So with Magos there, there's very much a focus mm -hmm. to that energy of the four of us. So, and I think then in terms of arranging, that was something I had in mind was how does that voice sit in the tessitura? When do you want to just blend into that completely and become one unit? And when do you want to give depth and have range from highs to lows? And I think what's beautiful on this album is that though the sound world is constant of quartet and voice, you get a lot of different takes on what that means by the different composers. I mean, obviously, there's a wide range of songs, but then the different arrangers had their own take on how to set Magos's voice with the quartet. I would love to hear how a piece is born, 
how it mutates, how it acquires the final shape, or at least as final a shape as the one we listeners get when it is already released. And I want to play one of the pieces. This is La Llorona. It's a legendary song, particularly in Mexico and Central America, about a crying woman, a woman who's crying for her children. It's connected with the role of women in that part of the world, the connection that they have as mothers to the continuity of the family and the displacement and aggression that they receive from male figures. Let's take a listen. Y aunque la vida 
La Llorona, from the recording Dreamer, performed by our guests, vocalist Magos Herrera, violinist Colin Jacobson, and the Brooklyn Writers String Quartet. This piece, La Llorona, is arranged for the project that you put together by Gonzalo Grau. How did it come to life? There are so many versions. I adore this version. In, in my ear, I can sense the other ones, and I can sense the unique space that this carves for itself. Could you walk me through the decision to make it? Do you research previous versions that have been done? Do you listen to those versions? Is the first time that you all play it together very different from the final version that we all get? I'm interested in the progress, in the transformation. We thought of so many songs, but I think La Llorona is such an iconic tune from Latin America. We didn't know that it was going to be featured in this movie. What's the name of the... Eh, Coco. 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 Right, so we didn't see that coming. But, you know, it's a very iconic song from Latin America, from Mexico. So to me it was important. I've sang this song in so many contexts and so many ways. And first time we met was a shared concert in Brooklyn where you sang that song with a harp player. I oh, believe. that's right. With Celso. Yeah, yeah, exactly. With a great Mexican harpist. So when Gonzalo Grau... One of the arrangers took this piece to be arranged. We had a very long conversation about it, and actually he sent me a first draft of the arrangement, and it was a back-and-forth situation. Yeah, I think the whole album was kind of like that, in the sense that the response from the arrangers, except from Colin, because Colin is an insider of the whole project, they were very enthusiastic about the project because it's kind of like unique. They were like, okay, but there's going to be a trio. No, no trio, no jazz trio. Okay, but is there going to be at least like a piano? No. So it was very like exciting in the sense that, okay, this is something new. And for me, it was very important to be a song album, an album that we featured the song itself and allowing the string quartet taking us into the journey of the story. And because obviously these arrangers know me and they were like, yeah, so then here we take solos and they were like, let's keep it contained. And that was one of the cases with La Llorona. Gonzalo created such an incredible atmosphere with the strings in that arrangement. There's just a sense of you don't know what's going to happen at the beginning and then it fades away into that ether. And then his writing is so 
subtle and specific in his choice of chords and how the notes rub against each other and create slight dissonance, but then come to real beauty. And I just, every time I kind of get goosebumps listening to that. And were there yeah. dramatic changes also from the first time the quartet and Magos rehearsed together to the final version, or the arrangement by then had settled down, so to speak? Yeah, I think actually... By the time we were rehearsing it, it had taken shape as pretty close to what we have now. I think the thing was then, like many of these songs, was really to find a unified feel. And I think speaking of not having drums, well, there are drums on some of these tunes, but sparse, you know. And so there's, I think, a beautiful vulnerability to many of these tunes because a string quartet can do that with songs. So the, the attention really goes not to production here, but it's like hopefully getting to a new core of what is in these songs, different than they've been yeah. represented before, but really not trying to obscure what's in the songs with production, you know, but really like what's in the song. You were talking, Magos, of the relevance that for you telling a story plays when you're choosing a song. It's the story that the song delivers. And for us listeners, at least for me, the act of listening to you is also following the story that your voice will take us to. How do you see story and music develop more of this for me? Well, I think music is storytelling, regardless if there's a voice singing a lyric. You know, all music is storytelling in different ways. You know, even improvising in jazz, if you're improvising, you're creating a story in the moment, in the spot. So having the possibility to articulate words is very powerful, but I think it has exactly the same emotional core than if you were not singing. You know, like these guys are incredible storytellers. But it's true that being able to have the power of the word gives a possibility, a different possibility too. Because the human voice, we all relate, we all sing, right? So it's something that we connect very easily to it. So it's a powerful tool, I guess. You also were mentioning the fact that within this record, the songs, the lyrics are the kind of border or containment of what you're delivering, but that there is occasionally the temptation, which you resist, of the improvisation. And the <laughs> two of you play a lot with improvisation. I'm fascinated by improvisation and jazz, improvisation and literature and improvisation in other walks of life. And I wonder if you could talk about the limits of improvisation. When you are improvising in front of the audience in jazz, are there things you're not going to do? Do you know? Or is it wherever your internal emotional state will take you? And how does that play with what the audience is expecting? I would say on the quartet's end, improvisation, as in literally making up notes on the spot, mm -hmm. is a limited role in what we do. There have been examples like work we did with a Persian musician where there's a 15-minute really storytelling kind of improvisation, more of a soundscape kind of thing that is created in front of people and is different every night. But generally, I'd say that I feel that the increasingly structured world of Western classical music and that in this sense of these songs is that it's about timing, it's about feel of rhythm, it's about inflection. And that all, like an actor, will deliver the same lines of a Shakespeare play or whatever it is differently but within a framework of conception of that character that they've developed, that is more often what we are doing than straight up improvisation over chord changes. It's not like something we went to Berkeley to study. So it's something that can happen, but needs a structure behind it. 
Is that how you see it too? But you're yes. obviously different training. I mean, there are different ways and contexts to improvise, but let's say in a more like over certain core changes, you have like a script in the sense what's available for you to improvise, like the scales that are available and the little side pets that you can take. But definitely when you improvise, you're like in a space where it's open. But I think you want to be truthful to the story of the song. So you want to continue in the development of the motif of the song itself, even if you're improvising. And those are the greatest improvisers, like, you know, the ones that they're like improvising, but you're still hearing Skylark over the changes, you know, and to me, that's the mastery of improvising. I want to go back, Magos, to the 13 pieces that the recording has the quartet and you have selected works by a number of very prominent Latin American and Iberian, that is Spanish, figures from Federico Garcia Lorca to Violeta Parra to Octavio Paz to Rubén Darío, a celebrated 19th century modernist poet, seldom discussed or remembered even today. And it strikes me that some of these figures are, of course, on the left side of the ideological spectrum. I think of García Lorca or Violeta Parra, who was a major figure in the resistance in Chile against the early Pinochet dictatorship. But some of the other ones, including Rubén Darío and Octavio Paz, tended up at the end of their lives to become rather conservative. Octavio Paz, though he resigned from office during the Tlatelolco massacre That's of students, right. was very close to the Partido Revolucionario Institucional, the PRI, the ruling party, and some would describe him as having betrayed his left-wing views. So in listening to the beautiful pieces, I thought to myself, what would Octavio Paz think of the dreamers today, and would he be helpful or would he ignore them? And I wonder if you thought of that or if it was the beauty of the poem itself, regardless of the politics of the poet, that made the selection what it is. That's a great question. We can talk about this particular topic for two hours and it would be amazing. And let me say that Octavio Paz is my favorite writer, period. And I'm aware of what you're just saying, but I like to see art beyond politics because we don't know what was happening with his heart and his mind and his actual circumstance in certain moments in his life but I like to keep for me what I identify with which is when he resigned from the embassy when La Telolco genocide took place and beyond that I have to say that these particular tunes have certain magic behind them if we believe in that and I do and Actually, I'm going to tell you this story because I think it's worth telling it. So I used to stay, when I go to perform in India, in the house where Octavio Paz lived. And I used to stay in the room where Octavio Paz used to write. So Octavio Paz was around my thoughts for so many years. And when we decided to do this project and I wanted to record Niña and then Nick, one of the Brooklyn writers, came up, found this little piece of Cantaro Roto, which is Dreams, and this became a song and everything. Every single person in the world told me, don't do it because it's impossible to get the rights for these pieces. No one records Octavio Paz. And I was like, you know what? I think we have to do this because this is the heart of the project. And to be able to write in such a precise, concise little piece of word the heart of this project with such a mastery, I don't care what he did. Something in his spirit was resonating there. So against all odds, I was able to talk to Marie-Jo Paz, 
uh, Octavio Paz. Yeah, and it was a phone call. You know, like, this is the project. This is what I'm doing. I'm doing it with Brooklyn Writer. So she was like, of course you have to do it. And you have my permission and blah, blah, blah. So and a couple of months after that conversation, she passed away. And I learned that she passed away when I was in India during the summer. And the Mexican ambassador in India told me, Magos, I don't believe this story. I've been after Mari Paz for years for her to give us permission to translate Octavio Paz's work into Hindi, which would be very important, and we haven't got the permission. So this is a miracle. So this had to yeah. be in the project. Let's take a listen to Dreams. This is the piece composed by you, Magos, with lyrics of Octavio Paz.
by Mago Herrera and Brooklyn Writer, featuring lyrics from a poem by Octavio Paz. I want to ask you now another side of this kind of ideological but musical element of the recordings. I understand that you grew up in Mexico at a time when La Trova Cubana, the Cuban type of protest music and song, Pablo Milanes, etc., was not only important, but important to you. And one gets this sense when listening to many of these songs that there is something of that trova in the way you delivered the songs by Federico García Lorca or by Rubén Darío or by Paz or by the others. Were you conscious of this? Oh, no. I'm loving hearing it. This is the music that my mother, you know, because my mother decided to go to college when we were like four kids. And that's what she listened to with people at school in the university. And there was this energy of, yes, this is possible to dream and to change. And, you know, Pablo Milanés, Silvio Rodríguez, my God, is like the fathers of the word. And I think what I connect with to all these incredible singers and writers is when they sing, there is such an importance in every single word that they sing, which is so incredible. And it's something that you don't listen too often these days. Even in simplicity, like Jimaya, Caetano Veloso, and other. The images are very simple. You know, it's so simple. The sun, the highway, you're driving to see your loved one. And it's so simple. And it's so grand in the simplicity. We're coming here to the very end, Colin. And I would like to ask you, kind of circling back to the beginning of our conversation, in this time of polarized political views, where being in America, and that is the United States, it feels as if you're being cut to pieces, metaphorically and sometimes physically, by very tense debates that are taking place. And at a time when some artists might choose not to be open ideologically, because there are other ways to cause change. What is the role of music in this very intense moment? With the theme of this project, I've been thinking in the last year about someone who just celebrated their no longer alive, but someone from you know the Western classical world, Leonard Bernstein, who just turned 100 and famously is quoted, and I won't quote exactly, but after John F. Kennedy was assassinated, that an artist, our response should be to violence to increase beauty in the world. So it's very much the theme of this project and that those words resonate with me. But I think it's an unfortunate thing if beauty is a political response. And of course, all of these things, democracy, beauty, they're very big words. They mean very different things to different people. But if we can't talk about them, if we can't have dialogue, then we're really going more in the polarized direction. And it's just interesting that something like working with Magos, which would have been a natural musical decision, takes on more political tones these mm -hmm. days. Like, we're neighbors in Brooklyn. We probably were going to work together whether or not the current political environment was there. But somehow this act of reaching across divide has taken on political overtones that it didn't quite used to. It used to be more like wide-eyed exploration. It still is, but it kind of has a somewhat creepy <laughs> overtone to it, not to the exploration, but to the environment that casts. It's not negativity. It's just it vibrates with more intensity, perhaps, than it would have 10 years ago. That's just my perception of it. Magos, what's yours? Being a Mexican in the United States, and maybe I'll open a parenthesis here to say that the word magos in Spanish is magicians, which is extraordinarily fitting. Oh, uh, yeah. Gracias. Is there a responsibility? I cringe at the word 
And certainly music has its own space. We Mexicans who have microphones in front of us or pens or violins or voices, is there a higher call at this particular moment? You know, again, as we started this conversation, I don't think it's wise to underline my definitions of myself. You know, like, I'm Mexican. I'm a jazz singer. I'm a blah, blah, blah. You know, I think it's a time where we need to conceive ourselves as the vaster species. Because otherwise, again, you're stepping exactly in the place where we don't want to be, where we divide ourselves. Of course, I felt a lot of vulnerability last year. Of course. So I'm Mexicana. It's not cool to see your people worried that they're going to be kicked out of the country. And But I think it doesn't help to just put yourself in a corner of definition, but the other way around, to create conversations and to see what we have in common, not what makes us different. Mm. And it turns out that the Brooklyn writer loved tacos and, you know, and that we can have a conversation through music regardless where we're coming from and what define us in a smaller scale. Well, it's been such a pleasure to have you around. Thank you, Likewise. Colin Thank Jacobson you. and Mago Herrera. Muchas gracias. 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 Bob Marley said that the good thing about music is that when it hits you, you feel no pain. I would have liked to be a musician. I ended up being a teacher and a writer. I'm very happy with these choices, but I exist in a constant state of rapture when it comes to certain types of music. Nothing transports me the way Bach or Mozart does. I feel free, happy. I don't have any musical talents. My brother, who is a musician, got them all. I can't even keep a tune. When people sing in group, I simply keep quiet. I wish I could join them, but I quickly get lost and I instantaneously stop enjoying the music. What attracts me to music is its universality. It transcends cultural habitats. It seems to exist beyond translation because what it seeks isn't content, but effect. Music, to me, simultaneously exists in and outside time. Heinrich Hein said that where words leave off, music begins. It is true that music makes you feel no pain. As a listener, your emotions appear to be distilled, ironed out, sublimated. This doesn't happen with silence, because silence doesn't have an arc, but music does. Technology might change this. Things might get better, but there is no progress in music. Music, at its best, is atemporal. It exists beyond time. Next time on In Contrast. It's never just you. There's all the elements of growing into the music, hearing it with the piano, and working with this particular pianist. Our In Contrast music series continues with vocalist Stephanie Hotzel and pianist John Milbauer. For previous episodes, including our interviews with journalists Ray Suarez and Wesley Lowry, children's authors Norton Juster and Mo Willems, and illustrator Barry Moser, visit our website at nepr.net. Help spread the word about In Contrast by reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. 
You can also follow us on Facebook, where we invite you to share your comments on this program and others in our series. And to see our in-the-classroom materials for educators, visit our webpage at nepr.net. Our intern is Delina Hadley. Our music is by the Fresh Cut Orchestra. The executive producer of In Contrast is John Vosey. I'm Ilan Stavitz. Thank you for listening. In Contrast is a production of New England Public Radio and Quixote Productions. <laughs>